Hello, and welcome to Crossroads Christian Center, where we keep it real, simple, and about Jesus. Please enjoy this sermon, and don't forget to subscribe. Praise the Lord. You know what? I'm going to have you be seated for a minute. You know, one thing that the Lord has been speaking to my heart this week, and maybe even before this week, is the concept of hope. And I want you to know that you, as a believer, your life should be hope for others around you, should have the message of hope to the world around you because you have Christ in you. And Christ is about hope. The sad thing is that there is a lot of hopelessness in our world. Even with people who look on the outside, they have everything, but they have no hope. And eventually you see the results of that. And the Lord is wanting to stir your hope in Him today. Hope for the things He's promised you. Hope for eternity. Hope for peace that He wants to give to your life. I want you to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Hebrews 6, 13. 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. I'm going to read it to you because I want to show you how hope is established for you. It is not a question. It is not a variable. It is established. It is a fact. Hope is a fact in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, he swore an oath by himself since he had no one greater to whom to swear, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. I like that, don't you? In other words, this is not random. This is not going to be um, maybe. He said, surely I'm going to do this. I will do this. And so, verse 15 says, And so, having patiently waited, he realized the promise in the miraculous birth of Isaac as a pledge of what was to come from God. Indeed, men swear an oath by one greater than themselves. And with them in all disputes, the oath serves as confirmation of what has been said and is an end of the dispute. In the same way, God, in his desire to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable nature of his purpose. See, you and I are heirs to the promise, okay? So God is showing the unchangeable nature of his purpose, intervened and guaranteed it with an oath. Not only did he give you a promise, he said, I am guaranteeing it with an oath. In other words, I swear by my own self because there is nothing greater than me. There is no one more faithful than me, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Can you get that? It is impossible for God to lie. So therefore, when he gives you a promise, he's not lying to you. It's impossible for God to lie, according to verse 18. We who have fled to him for refuge would have strong encouragement and indwelling strength to hold tightly to the hope set before us. When we hold tightly to the hope, that gives us indwelling strength. 
If you lack strength, it's possible that you have placed your hope in someone other than Christ. Verse 19, this hope, this confident assurance we have as an anchor of the soul. I love that, anchor. See, an anchor keeps the boat in place, doesn't it? An anchor is unmoving. But it says in this text we're in, that it's an anchor for our soul. What's the soul? The soul is the emotional center of a human being. If you are all over the place emotionally, find your anchor. Find your anchor. A lot of times when I talk with people, they are telling me where their emotions lie. They are telling me what their emotions are saying to them. They're telling me where their emotions are leading them. But I'm telling you, and you know what I always say about emotions, emotions do not make good leaders. They make good followers. And according to this text, our soul must be anchored to Christ Jesus. Giving you a little Christian God Jesus psychology there. Don't you, you don't need to pay 150 bucks to go see a counselor. You don't. You do not. I mean, I believe in counselors, but I'm saying this is good stuff right here. <laughs> so today you don't need to. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It cannot slip and it cannot break down under whatever pressure bears upon it. It cannot slip. It cannot break down under whatever pressure. And as we know, this world and problems and tragedies and situations and disappointments and discourages can create a lot of pressure on us to say, you're going to break down. world is watching. The enemy wants to break you down. But I'm telling you today, according to the promise in Christ Jesus, is that you can anchor yourself to Christ. And he says, according to his word, it will not break down. My hope, who I am, will not shatter. A safe and steadfast hope that enters within the veil of the heavenly temple, that most holy place in which the very presence of God dwells, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus paid for you to rest, to stand, to dwell on the rock of his promise. So this is what I have to say. This is what the Lord is saying. So we have hope for the promises to come, in, to come to pass. We have hope for God's promises to come to pass. Yes, this text is talking about the hope that we have for eternal life, but it's also referring to the promises Christ has given to us. All of the promises. According to, first, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, you know this is one of my favorite texts, it says this. For many as are the promises of God, in Christ they are all answered. How, what is it answered? Yes. And so through him we are able to say amen. What does amen mean? Let it be so. I am in agreement with the promise of God. So what are the promises that you have right now? What is God's dream for you? See, this is the thing. If it's God's dream for you, how do you test whether it's God's dream for you? 
You know, there's a lot of, you know, Americans, U.S. Americans, U.S. United States Americans are big on dreams. We're big on um, big dreams. You're a dream crusher. How dare you say you're a dream crusher? You know, and that's, and I'm big on those two things too. But are they God's dreams for you? And if it's God's dream for you, the test of it is this. It will bring him glory. It will bring God's glory. So let's test what has been spoken. So many times we want to think that everything that comes to our mind, everything that may even be, you know, create more comfort, create pat on the back, exalt me, is God's dream for me. But if it's going to bring God's glory, it's God's dream for you. If it is God's dream for you, then he will bring it to pass if you obey him. See, because it's impossible for God to lie. He's going to bring that dream to pass. And you can anchor yourself on Christ. You can anchor your soul, your emotional center, everything you are on Christ. But I'm going to tell you, if you're not anchored in Christ... The, the truth is, is that dream probably isn't from the Lord because you're not anchored in Christ. But what is God saying to you? And you, maybe you're in the waiting game. Maybe you are waiting for the timing of God. Maybe you're struggling with hope because the Lord says, I want to give you hope today. I want you to have hope in me. I want to bring things to pass that I have promised to you because truly all of God's promises are yes in Christ and he wants us to be in agreement with that. But we have to have our soul and everything that we are anchored in Christ Jesus. In the hope that he gives. Let's not turn to other things. Let's not turn to other people. Let's not turn to other strategies. Let's not turn to the world's way of accomplishing the dream that God has given to you. Because what does it create? It creates disappointment. It creates discouragement. It creates dysfunction. But when we anchor in Christ, we have peace. We have the indwelling strength. The indwelling strength. Is there something in your life where you, what, that you say, you know what? I have struggled with hope. I believe God has promised this. I believe God has promised, but I struggle with having hope. And I'm starting to feel discouraged. I'm starting to feel maybe a little depressed. I'm starting to feel distracted. And the Lord's saying, you know what? I want you to stand, recenter yourself on the hope that I give you. Not that the world gives, not that Pastor David and Lynn give, but the hope that his word says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can place yourself on the rock of my hope, and truly in my time and in my way, I will bring to pass that which I have promised because I am a faithful God. Do you have something that you say, you know what, I, I may have hope, but it's kind of dwindling a little bit. You know, he gives the example of Abraham and Isaac, and he says, you remember the story of Isaac. Did Abraham, waiting for Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, did their hope dwindle a bit? Yeah, it kind of did, didn't it? Because they ended up with Ishmael. So that was a hope dwindling. But the Lord has given you the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, 
through Jesus Christ, the great priest, who, who made the way for you. So if you say, you know what, I need to stand on the hope, I need to recenter myself on the hope that he has called me to, the Lord is going to fulfill the dream that he has given to me. I want you to stand. We're going to just pray over you. Hope. If you say, you know what, I need the hope. You know what, we need to be, once again, vessels of hope. In other words, this is what I mean by that. When people look at you, you may go through the same thing other people go through. You may go through tragedy. You may go through loss. You may go through disappointment. You may go through a divorce. You may go through pain, health crises. But this is the thing. You're different than they are when you have Christ because you have hope. We do not grieve like the world does who has no hope. We have hope. You always have hope. Let me tell you this. When the enemy comes to you and says there is no hope, you always have hope. You always have hope. Even in the loss of a baby that drowned on Father's Day, there's still hope. I was talking to my, my niece that that happened to this week. She says, Auntie, I have hope because of him. Come on, even in the most tragic situations, we are examples of hope. The enemy would want to make you like those who do not have the Holy Spirit and try to crush your hope. But you have hope because it's in Christ Jesus who never will fail you. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray over you. Just lift your hands to the Lord. You know, I hate the devil. I hate the devil because I see how he tries to crush hope in believers. I hate the devil for doing that. And you know what? We will be a place of hope no matter what you go through, no matter even what mistake you may make. And you say, well, I'm, I'm the prodigal coming back. Guess what? There's hope. There's always hope. There's always hope for restoration. There's always hope for redemption. There's hope for healing. There's hope for salvation. There's hope for peace. There's always hope. We thank you, Lord. Let's just raise our hands. Father, we recenter ourselves on you, the rock, according to Hebrews chapter 6. The, the one who swears by himself, he says, I have given you, this is what he says to you, I have given you my promise and I've given you my oath. I've given you my promise. So he's double-bagged the assurance that you can have. He, he could have only just given you the promise. That would have been good enough. But he said, you know what? I'm going to double-bag it. I'm going to double-bag it. Make sure your groceries don't sink through. I've given you my promise. And you know, amongst you right now, amongst all of you, those promises, the ones that are being very highlighted to you, are different according to every person, according to their life calling, according to their journey, according to their place in life, according to their walk with the Lord. It's different. If I would interview you, each one of you would say something different about what the promise that you are resting on right now, because there are so many promises that God gives in his word. He says, I have promised you, and I have given you my oath that if it's my promise, I will bring it to pass. And we can rest, we can rest 
But this is the thing. We have to be in obedience. We, the, the, the caveat here is this. You can't be off having your hope and your focus and everything else someplace else. It has to be in Christ. See, that's what, that's what the arrangement is in the text, is we place it all in Christ. If you see yourself right now standing, you're standing on the rock. And the rock is Jesus Christ in whom we place our hope. Father, we thank you, Father, for hope. We thank you for the hope found in Christ Jesus and that we always have hope. Lord, for those of us that may be struggling emotionally with hope, maybe regarding a situation in our life, and, we're, and we feel like we're all over the place emotionally, let us stand on the word that says our soul will be anchored to the hope in Christ Jesus. Our soul will be anchored to the hope in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we bring that into alignment right now. In your precious holy name. Hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. Thanks for coming. We're in the middle of a series uh, entitled uh, Slaying the Giants, uh, talking about issues in our culture. And uh, next week, if you go to the next slide, please, uh, Lauren. Lauren, oh, oh yeah, it's, the back one's uh, went out. Uh, Pastor Lynn's going to be speaking on slaying the giant of captivity, those things that keep us back from what God wants us to be. And, uh, you know, we're trying to address some of the issues that are affecting people in our communities. And this morning I want to talk to you about the issue of slaying the giant of, of anti-intellectualism. Now, just because I have a doctoral degree and it's not, I didn't buy it in a, you know, for 39 bucks online, I actually earned it. My wife has one as well. I don't want to address this just because we have advanced degrees. I want to address it because as a follower of Christ, one of the criticisms we often hear is that when you become a Christian, the very first thing you do is you park your brain in the parking stall with you when you get out of your car and you leave it there and you come to church and you don't use your mind. Let me tell you something. God wants you to use your mind. God desires you to be uh, uh, fully developed in all areas of your life, just not your spirit, but your intellect as well. And I want to challenge that thing because I've heard people tell me, I've had conversations with people when I'm talking to them about the Lord, and they say, well, you know, Christians are closed-minded, they're stupid, they're uh, uneducated, they're misinformed, the Bible is inaccurate. And I, I just say, well, really? And I open the Bible and I say, show me where. I've had debates with a Muslim, Muslim iman who told me that the Bible was full of errors. And I said, really? I said, here. I handed him my Bible. I said, show me one. You know? Well, I've never read it. Well, I've read the Quran eight or nine times. So I, I, could, I could cite you things in the Quran and talk to you about it. I could talk to you about these different religions. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is how do we identify as people of faith who have brains? How many of you have a brain out there? Okay, that's about half of us. Okay. <laughs> The other half, we'll talk about divine healing at the end of the service, okay? Uh, <laughs> you know, we believe that God wants you to use your mind. Now, you don't have to have all kind of funny letters before or after your name to be intellectual. You know, some of the smartest people I've met don't have formal degrees. And I'll tell you, I've worked in higher education for years, and some of the people with more initials behind their name have more initials behind their name than common sense in their brain. 
And so, you know, it's not about education, formal education, but it's about being a student, a lover of the Word of God, and using the Word of God to develop who you are as a holistic person. I believe as a Christian, we are holistic. We're not just spiritual. You know, we don't come to church and just, wee for two hours, and then go home and, and don't live it. We live every area of our life holistically, our intellect, our spirit, our minds, our finances, our relationships. Everything we do as a believer should be influenced by our relationship with Christ. So this morning I want to talk to you about the greatest commandment that Jesus gave. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me. If not, we have it on the screen in front of you. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 22, verse 34 through uh, verse 40, there's a passage that Jesus was teaching, and he, he taught the, his followers this. Listen to what he said. He was talking, and he was listening to the uh, Sadducees. The Sadducees was a religious sect, uh, sect in Jesus' day that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, okay? So they didn't believe that a person could be resurrected, okay? The Pharisees were another religious sect of the day. And they were kind of the ruling, uh, I always look at them as like the know-it-all, pompous, arrogant people that were guardians of the, of the law, okay? And so he's dealing with these two groups, uh, one, the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection, and the other people that were very staunch, uh, adherent, they'd be far right in their, their, their doctrine, okay? And he says this, he says, look in verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is also like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets, the law would have been the books of Moses, uh, the first five books in, the, in your Bible. And then he says, and also the prophets, which would be the prophetic books, uh, basically from the Psalms, uh, uh, Proverbs, after those, all the way through the end of the Old Testament. He says that basically hangs and sums up all of those things. And you see, as Christians, we do a really good deed as far as loving the Lord with our heart. We're very emotive, you know, and I'm, I'm a very emotional person. You know, my daughter would uh, go to movies when she was a teenager with her friends and say, watch this, my dad's about to cry. You know, I can't watch a Hallmark commercial without crying, okay? I, I, I get emotional, you know? Uh, I listen to Whitney Houston. I get so emotional, baby. You know, I just all of that just affects me as a person, you know? I'm very emotional. You are an emotional person. You may suppress your emotions, or you may be very hyper-emotional, but you're an emotional person. And Scripture tells us that we should love the Lord with all of our emotions. And I think most of us do a good job with that. The second thing he says here is he says, love the Lord with your soul. Your soul is who you are as a spiritual person. It's, it's your thoughts, your conscious life. You know, we, we do a really good job with that. But somehow in, the, in the, the teaching of the church, we've come to the place where we've taught people that, that, you know, your mind, you shouldn't ask, you know, Valerie, you shouldn't ask that question. I love meeting people that just come to faith because they ask the questions that the people in church are afraid to. Well, what about this? That's a really good question. Most of us, uh, 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 you know, we get all bent out of shape. I love those questions because what it makes you do is dwell on the Word of God. Get into the Bible and dig for yourself. You know, not uh, recite some things. Not, well, the Bible said it and I believe it and that settles it. I mean, how many of you like that, you know? Your kids didn't like it. You didn't like it when you were a kid, you know? And then you become a parent, you tell your kids the same thing, you know, well, just do this, do this. And it just 
creates resentment. Well, you know, the word of God is the same way. We don't want to turn people off. And you see, there's two extremes that we have in dealing with the subject. On one hand, we have the, the approach of saying, well, we're just going to be totally rational people. We become like Klingons. We live long and prosper, and that, that's it. That's all we do. We become all rational, intellectual beings, and we, we uh, uh, negate all other things. That's, that's a whole other sermon we'll deal with. Or we become people that are anti-intellectual, uh, uh, which basically we are people who, according to the dic dictionary, would say anything that is of intellect or anything of learning, we kind of put aside. You know, I tell people all the time, as your pastor, we will be a word-based church. If you don't want to hear the Word of God, go to another church. They preach out of the newspaper. They'll preach out of something else. We're going to be a church that has the Word of God preached and taught and encourage you to do it yourself because we want you to be strong in your faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. If you want to develop your faith, you don't go someplace and, and, and read a newspaper and get your faith developed. You get it faith built upon God's Word. And so what we will be at this church is a church that teaches the Word of God. My role as a pastor is to equip you with the Word of God so you can rightly handle it yourself. And so if you're anti-intellectual and you're saying, you know, I don't want to have this intellectual process, then you're basically saying, I don't want to learn about the Lord. You're the only one talking besides me. It's quiet in here. So let's look at this. Look at some of the things that a spirit of anti-intellectualism does in the church. First of all, it harms the church theologically. And by theology, I'm talking about the understanding of who God is. You know, I used to teach at a college, and I used to travel with students, and we took a group of students to a church in Nevada. And we went to the church, and we spoke, and one of the students got up and gave a really powerful message, just really brought it home to the church. And the pastor got up after him, and he goes, ah, theology, who needs it? Well, uh, you do, apparently. And so the students were like just flabbergasted that this, pro, this, this pastor would say that. We got in the van from the school and we're getting ready to drive out. And they're like, did you hear what he said? I said, hold on, don't say anything until we get off the property. I just, I didn't want to say anything on the property, you know. We got off the property and I'm like, yeah, I understand. But you know, some people, you, you say, well, we want to teach you some theology. Oh, I don't want to learn that. Well, what do you want to learn? Theology is basically two words, theo, God, and ology, which means the study of. So if you don't want to learn theology, you don't want to learn the study of God. How many of you want to learn the study of God? About a third of us. Okay, we're, we're going down in statistics today, all right? We, we want to know God because God has so much for us. You know, I think of the, the business thing that we want to do. Why do we want to do it? Because we want you to be blessed. We want you to walk in all of God's favor. Why do we teach the word? Because we want you to walk in the fullness of understanding what God's plan and purpose for your life is. And, and one of the problems with anti-intellectualism, it basically, you, you make God small. You diminish who God is and what he wants to do in you and through you, and, and sometimes even despite you. You know, J.B. Phillips, who was an author, he's a, a biblical scholar, he was one of the translators of the living, the living Bible, he wrote a book and he says, your God is too small. And he basically talked about how we as Christians, because we don't love the word of God, we don't understand what it teaches us, we don't understand how it wants to impact our lives and empower us, we diminish who God is. 
Anti-intellectualism destroys your view of God. That's why in 1 Chronicles verse 16, verse 11, it says this. It says, look to the Lord and to his strength. Seek his face always. Because God wants you to understand who he is. You know, God, this is one cool thing about the Lord. The Lord takes all of our junk and trades it. And God always trades up. He takes your, your, your messed up life and he turns it around. He takes your depression and gives you hope. He takes your pain and he brings you comfort. He takes your sickness and he brings you healing. He takes all those things that are, are, are negatives and gives you positives. And even in the situations where you may not see the positive on this side of eternity, he gives you the hope to trust him. Second thing that anti-intellectualism does and sorry, I'm a, a teacher, so everything's like doctrinally. The second one, you know, the, I, I just the way my OCD kicked in on this one. Sorry, I can't help it, you know. Um, but when I talk about the, the whole concept of affecting the church doctrinally, doctrinally is simply put this. What is your view of God and his interaction with human beings? So when we're talking about doctrine, we're talking about things like how do you deal with the view of, of, of coming to faith? How do you deal with the view of how we treat one another? You know, one of the things that breaks my heart, and one of the sermons we're going to do in this series is uh, slaying the giant of hatred. You know, our culture is just permeated with hatred right now. And, and God's word speaks volumes on that. They shall know you are Christians. How? By your political ideology. By your attacking a different people. No, they'll know you're Christians by your love. Okay, back focus, back focus. That's a, that's a commercial for a couple weeks from now, okay? So how do, you, how do you deal with, as a believer, how do you deal with issues like race relations? How do you deal with issues of your sexuality? How do you deal with issues of, of immigration? Yeah, that, the Bible talks about that. How do you deal with issues of authority? How do you deal with ethics and morality? That's when we're talking doctrinally. When you have a weakened or diminished view of, of your intellect, you don't question some of those things. You become like the lemming that just run off the cliff like everyone else. God says you shall love the Lord with what? Your mind. And, and sometimes that's wrestling with the tough questions. But God wants you to do that. So don't allow pop culture to, to tell you what you should believe. You know, because one thing about pop culture is six months from now or a year from now, it's going to be different. You know, someone's Instagram account, they lose a bunch of followers, and all of a sudden they change their, their appeal. Why? Because they're influenced by the masses. You and I, as a believer, we have an audience of one that influences us. Because all, all these other things are shifting sand, but Christ is a solid example that we stand on. Look what 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says. 2 Corinthians 2, 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, y'all, anyone from the south, y'all, okay, y'all, y'all over there, you all have the mind of Christ. Amen. That means when you come into Christ, Christ transforms your mind and gives you understanding of things that you may not know. But that doesn't uh, uh, say that, okay, as a result of that, I don't need to study. No, God imparts you his wisdom. You know, you business leaders, this whole thing we're talking about, one of the things that, that so many people don't understand is that God gives you the ability to create wealth. Yes. And if you know him better, it, 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 it increases your opportunities to be blessed. Yes. And this is not prosperity, this is just reality. 
You go to any culture where the gospel is preached, and there's a higher level of economic growth in that culture. Why? Because God gives people wisdom how to deal with finances. God gives you wisdom on how to be good stewards because your finances don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord. You know, you look around this building. I remember coming here six and a half years ago, and honestly, this place was a mess. I was in cleaner churches and more organized churches in India. Come on, Pastor. <laughs> Talk to the board. You know, nothing against our dear friends from India, because I love India. You know that. But the finances were a mess. Why? Because they weren't, there wasn't good stewardship, and it wasn't the board's fault. It was just this, the way things were, were set up. You're sitting in new, comfortable pews. You're sitting in, in a carpeted uh, sanctuary. You're sitting in a beautiful sanctuary that's been remodeled. There is air conditioning in both air conditioning units. Why? Because of good stewardship principles. Because when you understand how God wants you to handle your finances and how God wants to handle relationships and how God wants to handle race tension, you understand that you have the mind of Christ. You know, the kingdom of God is not all white. You know that? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's a little color in it? Aren't you glad there's, there's going to be every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, every nation? Because God loves the, the races. This isn't even in my notes. You're recording this, aren't you, Dylan? Good. It'll be on, you'll be able to get the, the online version of this if you need it. Podcast. Third thing. Anti-intellectual, oh, let me give you, I gave you the scripture there, okay. Third thing, anti-intellectualism harms the church apologetically. And by apologetically, I don't mean, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry. Apologetics is the term we use in the church world to say, how do we defend our faith? You see, when you are severed from your brainstem when you come to church, you don't think because half of you are here today. I'm speaking to the half that don't have a brain, okay? Pardon? Be nice. I'm always telling me be nice. I know. <laughs> Humor lightens things up, you know? Sorry, that's just the way I am. I know you all have good brains. But when you disconnect your thinking from your faith development, then how you share Christ with people is often beneath them. Well, you, you just, you're just a simple person. If you would just do what the Bible says, I don't really understand what it says, but if you would just do what it says, you would be just like me. Oh, so in other words, you'd be brain dead. Great, we're all catatonic. We're not Christians, we're, cat, we're in a catatonic state. No, as a believer, we're called to use all of our mind. You know, some of the people that I love to listen to are people like Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel or Ravi Zacharias because they're people that think and they come up and they, 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 they process some of these really tough questions. And then when you're able to hear that, you could talk to other people. And I always tell people that when they say, they ask a tough question that you can't answer, I don't say, well, that's not a very good question to ask. You say, you know what, that's a great question. Let's meet again next week and I'll have the answer for that. 
Let's meet again some other time. You know what? That is a, you know, I have never thought of that. When I read the scripture, I never thought of that. That's a great thing. Let's get together and discuss it. Let me, let me go dig, do a little digging. Let me use the mind God's given me and get into the word and find out what the word says, and then we'll talk about it later. Look what it says in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That's the first and foremost thing you do as a believer. And then he says, the second thing Peter says here is, and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, not just the people that ask the questions that are good questions that you have the answers to, but everyone. You know, some people are going to ask you questions that are just like, you know, there's no real answers. On this side of eternity, you know, like when, when someone loses a baby like our niece or you go through a tragedy, you, you, someone in your family dies and why does this happen? I learned when I lost my first wife in a car accident, the why questions aren't really the, that important, you know, because you're never going to know the answer this side of eternity. But you can go and you can see what Scripture says about putting trust in God and having hope and believing that, that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Know that, that God has a plan, a plan not to harm you but to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope. And know that, that God is always with you and He's close to the brokenhearted. You know, when you read Scripture and you understand that, you're able to better communicate that with other people. And He says, and this is why you give it to them. It gives them a reason for hope. And he says, always do this, and I wish the Christian church in America would grasp this last portion yeah. with gentleness and respect. Yeah. Man, I tell you, yeah. who's it, Aretha Franklin, respect, you know? She just, yeah, you know, we just need to start respecting people. We're living in a culture that basically, my opinion is right, irregardless of what facts you have. And too many Christians have jumped on that bandwagon and were pummeling people into telling them how much Jesus loves them and how much God cares for them. And we're doing it with totally disrespecting them and totally doing it with, with a lack of gentleness. You know? Number four, anti-intellectualism harms the church emotionally. You know? Because when you aren't understanding what the Word of God says, it affects who you are as a person. You know, Pastor Lynn and I, we always say together is that emotions don't make good leaders. They make good followers. Actually, emotions make really good followers but make terrible leaders. And, you know, your emotions, you know, some of us, we, we deal, some of us have issues. It may be chemically. It may be uh, environmentally. It may be things that have happened to us. You know, smell is, a, is an interesting thing because... Uh, you know, you were down, uh, Danielle, you were down in Ecuador. Henry, Henry Smith, he smells demonic activity. I don't know if you, he said anything about that. But when I was with Henry traveling, we were doing church services. He goes, I smell a demon. I'm like, really? I smell like French fries. You know? <laughs> you know? You know? Friendly, and Henry, he senses things. But, you know, smell is your number one trigger for memory. So when you go someplace and, it, oh, man, that smells like the biscuits grandma used to make, you know? Or you go someplace and maybe something bad happened to you there and there's a certain smell. And then you smell it and all of a sudden you get this funky feeling on you because it triggers your memories. You see, if you don't study scripture and see how God wants to come into your life in a totality and cover all areas of your life, then you, 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 you allow those emotions to rule you. 
And God wants you not to be ruled by your emotions. He wants you to be ruled by the Spirit of God. He wants the Holy Spirit. Because one thing that is, I found in life is this. Emotions, they're there. They're neither right or wrong. They're just, they are. But how you deal with them depends on what they're going to do with your life. That's why in Scripture, in the book of Isaiah, I love this, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where it says this, Now come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. You see, the Lord wants to have communication with us. He wants to talk to you and have a communication and allow the Holy Spirit, because the New Testament tells us that the Spirit of God will lead you into truth. So if the Lord says, come let us reason together, he's basically saying, let's sit down and let's go through this. You know, do you ever have an argument with someone over a miscommunication? What do you do? You sit down with them and you reason with them. You say, hey, you know, we, we, we really, something wasn't right here. We just didn't get on the right track here. Let's sit down and let's, let's talk about this. And what do you do when you're talking? You discuss both sides of the situation. And you come to a place of understanding. Why? Because you've reasoned together. And, and the Lord wants you to be able to reason. He wants you to use your mind. He wants you to use your mind in a way that it, you, you are not controlled by your emotions. Fifth thing, anti-intellectualism harms the church philosophically. And, and, you know, this is one thing that when I was, I was prepping, I thought, you know, sometimes people in the church, we don't like to talk about philosophy because we think that philosophy is evil. But, you know, actually, if you go in and you take a class in religion or you study uh, theology, you study the doctrine of God, it's actually a part of a branch of philosophy. And philosophy is basically simply the pursuit of wisdom. You know, if you don't like wisdom, take out the book of Proverbs and just tear it out of your Bible. The book of wisdom, or the book of Proverbs is another name for it, is all pithy little statements that will help you to read and, and to process your, uh, your faith. That's why I, I tell people all the time when they're trying to develop a reading plan for the Bible, you know, if you don't do anything else, read one proverb a day. There's 31, so on the months that have 28, you don't have to read the three, but every, every month or every day of the month, you can read one proverb, and if you listen and take note of it and you study it, you'll become a much wiser person. All right? So what, is, what, is, what does Paul say? Paul says this about philosophy in Colossians 2, verse 8. He says that see through that, that none of you, uh, that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy. And a lot of times Christians say, well, because Paul says that, we throw all the baby out with the bathwater. We get rid of anything that has to do with philosophy. You have to do anything to do with reasoning. You have to do anything with thought process. You throw it away. No, that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul is addressing here is he's actually giving the church two warnings. First, don't lump Christianity in with all the other philosophies. Yeah. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's a, it's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a worldview. It's something that you, it, it encompasses all of who you are. Look what he says in the rest of this, this verse. He says, which depend on human tradition and the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than Christ. And the second thing he's saying is if you have a philosophy, don't build it upon things that aren't built upon Christ. Because if you have a worldview that doesn't incorporate Christ in it, you're, you're, you're going to be defective because all truth comes from the Lord. And if you understand that God is a God of truth, and I think a lot of times people don't want to hear the truth of themselves, 
Because sometimes, you know, I'll talk about myself. I remember when I came to faith. I remember sitting with this pastor, and he was telling me, you know, David, you've made some really stupid decisions. And what happened? My pride welled up in me. You don't even know me. How dare you tell me that I made some stupid decisions? I'm making one right now, by the way. You know? You know, we get arrogant. We think, oh, God, you the creator of the universe. I'm just this little peon speck of dust down here, but I could tell you how to rule things. If I was a God of the universe, well, you're not. Fortunately for the rest of us, you're not. You know, and, and, and sometimes when we're dealing with this, we, we, we have a philosophy that is so countercultural to Scripture. You know, 1 Corinthians tells us in, in chapter 8, verse 1, that knowledge puffs up. You know, you don't think this is true? Go to any university campus. You know, I dealt with people with PhDs, and they had, a, you know, a very, very thin knowledge of one subject. And they were pompous and arrogant about it. You know, I had one, one, one professor that had this degree in, in infestation of a certain beetle in the pistachio nut. <laughs> well, I've got another allergy. Your whole degree means nothing to me, you know. We have people that are experts, that are false experts because they have knowledge in one area, and we give them knowledge in all areas. You know, that's why it's so important as you as a believer to study the Word of God for yourself. You know, when we pastored in Missouri, we had this really great gal that went to our church. Our son, Brandon, was just born there, and we had three little kids. Phoebe and Chris were babies at the time, and, and uh, she, she said, you know what, Pastor? I want to be your babysitter for you so you and your wife can go on dates. What date? What's a date? You know, when you have three little kids, you know, it's like, you know, you can't remember what that is. And she, she would take our kids, and then she would take them out and do things, and we'd pay her, and then she'd go buy them clothes. And I'm like, no, you don't get it. We're supposed to pay you, and you're just returning it. She just loved our kids. She ended up having five kids of her own and is married to a pastor. And uh, precious young lady, but she was a bank teller. And the reason she, uh, she, stopped, being a, she stopped being a bank teller is because there was a, a robbery one day, and a guy came in and, and held her up, actually pulled the gun on her and told her to give all the money in her drawer to him in this bag, and he left, and she was just traumatized. And so I was talking to her one day about being a bank teller, and I said, I had a question for you. I said, how do you determine if a, if a dollar bill or a, a currency is counterfeit? And she says, you know, you deal with the real all the time, so when you, you touch a counterfeit, you know it. You know, too many times as Christians, we don't want to deal with the real. We want to deal with the counterfeit. And so the real, we don't understand. Are you tracking with me? Those half of you that have brains right now, okay, you're tracking. The rest of you, we're working on redeveloping, connecting those brain tissues, you know. But basically, if you want to know truth, you have to go to the source of truth. You can't expect to study all of these, these counterfeits and then have a relationship with the God. You have to develop your mind in that area. The, the sixth thing is this, is anti-intellectualism uh, harms the church socially. How you, how you understand God will affect how you treat other people. Yes. You know? Some of us have relational problems because we're not treating other with, others with respect and dignity. You know? Some of us have problems with our, our families because we're just treating them in a way that is very unchristlike. But then we want to ram the scriptures down their throat. You know, let's start living our faith and not lecturing it. Let's start living our faith in a way that people will see that we're Christians, 
by the way we treat them. Even if they don't treat us like we think we should be treated. You see, one of the things that is, I love this passage in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we're all one in Christ. And you see, one of the things I started doing a few years ago is I start calling people brother and sister when I'm talking to them. It's not because I'm from California. You know, it's not like, yo, bro, what's up, you know? Got surfing today, you know? It's like I just talk to them, and I start talking to people as a brother and a sister. And when you use that vernacular with them, it often brings down some of the barriers that they have. You know, as a, a middle-aged, actually younger middle-aged, bald white guy, <laughs> hey, I represent that, uh, you know, sometimes going to different different ethnic groups, it's, you're perceived a very different way, you know? If I was wearing Doc Martens and had a shaved head and I was in an African-American community, I, they, they, that would cause some tensions, you know? But when you start treating people like Christ treats them, you start treating people that there's no, all of us are the same. You know, one of the things about this church, and my wife and I were talking this last week, is, you know, this church will, as long as we're your pastors, we will be, uh, like in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimoto, you know, we will be a sanctuary for everyone. I don't care about your religious background. I don't care about your political background. I don't care about your orientation. I don't care about your, whether you're a citizen or you're not a citizen. I don't care about if you're illegal or illegal. I don't care this or that. You're going to be welcomed here. Now, you may not like what's preached, but you're going to be welcomed here. And I'm not going to use and I'm not going to use the Bible to bash you. Because one of the principles that I have for for being a pastor is this. We are a place where we cover people's sin, we don't expose it. So Jose, if you do something really stupid, I'm not going to have a PowerPoint demonstration of it. Okay? <laughs> Even though Amy gave me money to do it, I'm not going to do it, you know? We'll put that into the building fund, you know? We want to cover people's sins because when we do that, we are demonstrating the love of Christ. Now, are there consequences for some of these lifestyles or some of these things that we may have deal with people? Yes, there are. And as followers of Christ, what do we do? We try to help people overcome those things. We try to help people deal with those issues. But as, as, as people of faith, we treat everyone the same. You know, God doesn't, God doesn't respect people in certain categories. Well, you know, you have a, a successful business, therefore I'm going to treat you really well. Oh, you're, you're, not, you're homeless? Well, you know, you can go sit in the back of the church. Actually, doesn't, isn't there a scripture about that? About when someone comes in, in the book of James, and you honor those, and then you disrespect someone else? You know, scripture, if you are going to deal with people as a believer, you treat everyone the same. Even the people that you don't like. You know? Why? Because that's what we're called to do as followers of Christ. Seventh thing. Don't worry, there's only 23 of these. Seventh thing is this. It harms the church evangelistically. And when I talk about that, it's about our, our ability to communicate Christ with one another. You see, when we're talking to people about the Lord, and you don't think things through, and you're not willing to, to dig in and, and evaluate Scripture, it puts you in a place where you could really uh, cause great harm to the gospel. I've heard, I've heard pastors even. Let me pick on myself for a, ch a change, okay? Is that okay with you guys? So then pick on you. you know, I've heard pastors that have said things that I'm like, you really believe that? 
Where did you get that? From a Cracker Jack box? You certainly didn't get it from the Word of God. The Bible doesn't teach that. I've heard, you know, there's, there's one church in America that goes around at conventions and, and blasts military. They go to military funerals and tell the family members that their, their, their kids should have been killed because God hates America. They'll go to gay conventions and put up signs about how God hates whatever slam they want to put on them. You know, that is not the Christ of the Scripture. That is not the God of the Bible. It may be the God of the Old Testament when he was, before the Holy Spirit came because the law came through Moses, but Scripture says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's not the God that we serve. We serve a God that is compassionate and forgiving and loving. Look what it says here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And then the Apostle Paul drops down to verse 16 and says this, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. You see, as you study Scripture, and you may go through some things, you may go through some challenges in life, and one of the things that you do when you go through challenges in life, you see how the goodness of God has been revealed to you. You know, I tell people, we lost a house. We were pastoring a church. They didn't want it to be a, a spirit-filled church. They asked us to leave. We said, we'll be more than glad to leave. If you don't want the Holy Spirit, we don't want to be part of this church. We left as a result of it. Our house went into foreclosure. At that time as a minister, if, your house went into, if you went into bankruptcy, you lost your ministerial credentials, which meant the end of your career. And I spent a year driving back and forth two and a half hours to our house, and I remember praying, and God, God, oh God, you've got to sell this house. And it was right when the economy was dropping, and they just dropped a whole couple hundred houses outside the city limits, and you could buy a, a mansion for less than what our little place was worth. And I remember praying and praying, God, please help us sell this. And it, 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 we had to give it back to the bank. It was one of those painful things. We had less than $1,000 in our total savings as a family. We had a family of five. And I remember saying, God, why did you allow this happen? Remember the why question? Sometimes you don't understand it, this side of eternity. This one we did. Because I've dealt with people that have lost houses. And I've also seen the favor of God to restore that which was lost. See, Scripture says, I will not give to God something that costs me nothing, you know? And for us, why are we so passionate about the things of the Holy Spirit? Because it cost us everything we had. It cost us all of our down payment, 20% of a down payment on a house, gone. Why? Because we believed in the power of the Holy Spirit enough to say, you know what, I'm going to draw a line in the sand here, and I'm going to believe in the teaching of the Word of God and teaching of the Holy Spirit, and if it costs us losing our house, so be it. And we've gotten a beautiful house. We had a beautiful house after that. We have a beautiful house now that people tell us, we, you shouldn't be able to afford. You're right, we shouldn't. But God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we imagine and ask. Why? Because I believe the word of God. So the, back to the scripture in Philippians. You see, sometimes God allows you to go through something so you can help other people. Sometimes God allows you to experience something so that he can teach you about himself. Yeah, that's right. You know, the thing I love about Jesus is Jesus just didn't talk, talk. He walked the walk. Yeah. You know, I love it in John. One of the favorite passages of scripture a lot of times people will read is, is in uh, uh, John uh, chapter 9 verse 5 where it says, I'm the light of the world. But then Jesus went and touched the eyes of a blind guy and healed him. The light of the world means more to someone who was blind who but now see than to someone who's always been able to see and doesn't differentiate shades of light. 
you know. Jesus goes through and he, he, in, in John chapter 11, verse 25, and he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. No one who believes in me, uh, uh, the one who believes in me lives and even though they die. Right after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Really screwed up the theology of the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection, you know. You see, Jesus, the one thing I love about Jesus, and when you study his life, he just didn't say something to people. He actually demonstrated it to them. And, you know, that's what he wants you and I to do. Yes. He wants his relationship with us to change us so we're different than people around us. So that we're not treating people one way on Sunday morning because they're sitting next to us in church and we see them on the street, we treat them another way. Yes. That we're consistent in everything we do. And when you're doing that, you know, I'll tell you something. People smell fakes. People smell counterfeits. You know? We had a lady in one of our churches, every time you'd call her at the house, she'd answer the phone, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Maranatha. <laughs> okay, I get hallelujah means praise the Lord, and she repeated it in English because I didn't speak Hebrew, and then she said Mar Maranatha, which is Aramaic for come quickly, Lord Jesus, you know, okay, cool, you know, she must be a spiritual woman, right? She was arrested for elder abuse, she was beating her mother. How many people do we know that talk one thing but live something else? You know, I want us as believers, you want to be a muscle Christian? You want to be a strong person of faith? Live what you believe. Just don't talk it, live it. Because people around you are looking at you and saying, you know what, you're sincere or you're a fake. You know? And sometimes you don't even know they're watching you. You know, we were, my wife and I, we, we, we became connoisseurs of coffee. We're becoming coffee junkies. We gave up Diet Coke. We have to su su supplant our addiction from one thing to another. So she got off. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking on that next week. Never mind, okay? <laughs> we got, she got off aspartame. I got off aspartame, but now we're on caffeine. It's, it's a legal drug in the state of California, okay? Uh, and we go to this coffee shop every morning. We get a coffee. We sit and talk, and we do things. And, and it's interesting because the baristas will say things to us about how we treat one another, you know? So on my cup, they put a Mr. Mean, and on her cup, Mrs. Nice. <laughs> what? No, that's why you never get a tip right there. I have proof in, the, in a Sharpie right on the cup, you know? But they'll say things to us. They'll say, you know, hey, I really I appreciate how you, you treated this person, you know? One day, the, the, someone was being really nasty, mean to the, the barista, and I said, you know, they said, I'm never coming to this place again. I said, well, you know, there's a Starbucks right down the street here, if you'd like. And they just looked at me, and they stopped being mean to the person, and the barista goes, thank you for doing that, because you know, as an employee, I can't say that. But thank you for defending me when I can't defend myself. You see, people are watching us, folks, and they're watching whether what you hear on Sunday morning from 10 to noon translates to the rest of your life for the rest of the week. Finally, anti-intellectualism harms you spiritually. And by this, I want to talk about a couple things. It, it harms your view of, of, of your relationship with Christ. It harms your view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You see, in, in the book of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is a great passage, but verse 2 specifically says this. It says, do not be transformed to the pattern of this world. How many of you as kids did you have a Play-Doh machine, you know? You have a little Play-Doh maker, and you put the Play-Doh in, you squeeze it. You know, you put the, the angel hair 
fitting on the front of it. It comes out like angel hair pasta. You know, you put the flat thin one that comes out like a lasagna noodle. You know, you squeeze through the spaghetti or the, 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 the Play-Doh. That's really what it's talking about there. It's talking about being forced into a mold that changes the, sh- the shape of who you are as a person. It's saying don't, don't allow this world to change who you are. But he says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what? I don't know about you, but I need my mind renewed all the time. I need my mind renewed because I'm getting bombarded by media and advertisements and this and that and noises and conversations and all this stuff that can get my mind off of Christ. So therefore, we're transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, when you do that, then you'll know God's good and pleasing and perfect will. You see, we, we, we flip that around. We want to know God's pleasing, perfect will, and, and that's probably the number one question you hear in Christianity is, what is God's will for my life? But we don't want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You know, we say, oh, God, what's your will for my life? Well, it's right here in the Word. Just read it. Well, no, I, I want the abridged version. You know, I, I, I didn't have time to study. I want the cliff notes. Can you just give me a cheat sheet so I can get through this? And God say, no, you want to know my will for your life? Open up the Word and let the Word transform you and renew your mind. And I don't know about you, but I tell you, there's some days where you just you get in a situation and you're just bombarded. And if you don't discipline your mind to think upon the things of Christ, you will easily be swayed. Second thing it does, it harms your spiritual walk, not just your view of salvation, but your walk. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. It says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You know what that means? You don't have to do it the way I do it. You just have to do it the way it's best for you. You see, all of us are different in this room. All of us have different learning styles. All of us have different processes of way we memorize things. You know, But you have to do what's best for you. When I was a professor, I used to tell students all the time that you, know, you don't need to get an A. You just need to do the best that you could do. Maybe your best is a C. Maybe your best is a D. D's passing, you know. Maybe your best is a B. Whatever is, is best for you, you do it to yourself. And that's why Timothy is being instructed by the Apostle Paul to say, you know, do your best as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. You see, when you are processing God's word and you're getting into it yourself and you're, you're learning what it says, then you can say, I can apply that to my life. I could take what I've learned and put it into my life in such a way that it transforms me. And the Word of God will transform you. The more you're exposed to something, the greater there is going to be a consistency of that staying with you. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine, when he was going to grad school, he worked for, uh, he was a radiology technologist for the military. And he, he would go into areas and measure for lead exposure. And he would say, you know, when you're exposed to certain amounts of lead, it appears in your system. You know, there used to be a company in Gilroy, moved to Texas, that used to have badges for radioactivity. They'd wear a badge, and you'd wear it in the, the uh, uh, hospitals and in, in nuclear power plants. And when you got a certain level of, of uh, radiation, the rad detector would, would go off. Well, the same thing is true with the Word of God. The more you expose yourself to the Word, the more awareness you have of the Word. So as people of faith, you can't build faith without building it upon a book of faith. You know, 
uh, you can't develop your spiritual well-being if you don't get in the Word of God. And, and, and I'm not trying to put condemnation on you because Scripture says in, in, in the book of Romans, there's therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But if you're not reading the Word, you wouldn't know that. You tracking? So the more you get in the Word, the more the Word gets in you, and then the more you become like the Word. And who is the Word? Jesus, according to John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, who is Jesus Christ. So if you want to know Jesus Christ, get in the Word, and He gets in you, and then you become more like Him. And then people around you go, wow, what happened to you? You're so different. I know your name is Grace, but you're actually actually gracious now. What is, what's happened to you? you did, did you have an experience? Yeah, I met the living God, and He transformed me. And he did things in my life that I couldn't do on my own. So let's close. Worship team, you want to come up? I want to close by reading one scripture. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10 declares this. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward the person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. You see, half of us in this room right now, God's rewarding because we have a mind. The other half, we're working on reconnecting it. And God's saying this, I want to reward you. I want to look at you and say, you know what? Use your mind for me. One of the things I found, I had a really close friend of mine growing up. His name was Charlie. We used to call him Stoner Charlie. Tells you my past. Charlie was like high all the time. He was just, just a cloud. He was like, you know, Pigpen on the, 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 the Snoopy comics. Peanuts comics. He was like him, but it was a cloud of, of marijuana. You know, he's just a growing cloud around him. And he couldn't put a sentence together. He was like the most brain dead. Cheech and Chong had nothing on this guy, okay? He was like just gone, okay? He came to faith. God restored his mind. Not only did God restore his mind, he actually went to college, graduated summa cum laude, got accepted to graduate school, graduated summa cum laude, went and got his PhD in psychology, graduated summa cum laude, has authored two books. Why? Because God transformed and renewed his mind. Now, you may not be as bad as him, but you're in some spectrum from there to being a perfect mind. Let me tell you, God wants to transform your mind. God wants you to have a desire that your heart and your mind come into alignment with Him and you walk in a relationship with God that you're using every capacity of who you are as a human being for His glory and His honor. You know, the the Westminster Catechism says that the chief end of mankind is to glorify God. And God wants to be glorified through you by you using your mind. Some of you, he's going to use it in business. Some of it, he's going to use you in, in, uh, in, in the trades. But you know what? God wants to use your mind in a way that glorifies him. And the only obstacle in that is you. So I want to pray for you this morning. That you would just open yourself up to the spirit of God in a way that you could say, you know what? I want God to use every part of me, including my mind. Is that you? Let me see your hands. Father, we thank you that this morning we could just come before you and we could hear what your word says about using our mind. And I pray that, God, you would break anything off of us that is, is keeping us from using who we are as a person. God, you gave some of us 
razor-sharp intellect. God, you want to use that for your glory. Some of us, Lord, we may struggle. Uh, we may be challenged educationally. We may be challenged in a way we, 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 don't, we don't learn things the traditional way. God, I pray that you would come into our minds and teach us how to learn things that best suit the way we're made. That, God, from one extreme to the other, we may be people that are very simple. But, God, I know this, that you are the God who spoke us into existence while we're in our mother's womb. And, Lord, I pray for us this morning that you would just transform our minds. I pray that our minds would be renewed. Lord, I pray that if there's any thinking patterns or behaviors that we do that, that derail what you want to do with our intellect, that, God, we give those over to you this morning. We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, for being lazy in our mind. Forgive us for not being studious of your word. And I pray that you would transform our minds so that we can have the mind of Christ. Lord, your word declares it over us, but let us now live it that we have your mind, that we have the mind of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would just come into each of us in a unique way, the way that you have created us, the way you knit us together, the way you designed us. And God, you would use that to transform us, to be people who demonstrate to others around us that we know you and we love you and that you're compassionate to us. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. We hope you were blessed, encouraged, and challenged by this week's sermon. See you again and remember to hit that subscribe button for our next episode. God bless and remember, we keep it real, simple, and about Jesus.